Exodus, a book about utter devastation, the unbelievably miraculous, and a mighty rescue. A book about a warrior god-king who fights to deliver his people out of brutal slavery. A book about an unexpected deliverer, born in one culture but raised in another. A book about the wanderings, failures, and ultimate formation of a people. A book that, more than any other in the Bible, seeks to answer the question, Who is the Lord? So, who is he? Who is this God? It's time to see for yourself. Good morning and welcome. A quick question as we get going. If it's uh, supposed to be daylight savings, why does it feel like something's been taken? <laughs> something's been stolen. I don't know how that works. Uh, we begin the first week of a two-part uh, sort of mini-series to close our look at the book of Exodus. We'll begin with part one this morning, looking at the glory of God, and then next week with the glory of God, part two. And then we'll move into a short two-week series called True Religion in the weeks leading up to Easter, where we'll be looking at James 1 and what it means to serve the least of these. Uh, we'll have some organizations here in the lobby that'll be here that can give you more information about fostering, about adoption, about getting involved with counseling women who are carrying at-risk pregnancies. We'll also be taking a look at what we're doing with the orphanage that we partner with in San Luis Potosi, Mexico, and talk about how you can impact a child's life there. Pastor Brett and Pastor Armand are actually taking a team next week, I believe, and when they come back, we'll get all the updates from them. There you go. So let's begin here. You can uh, turn your attention to the screen. This is the glory of God, part one. The scripture passages from Exodus 33 and a bit from 34. Here we go. And the Lord said to Moses, leave this place, you and the people you brought up out of Egypt, and go up to the land I promised on oath to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, saying, I will give it to your descendants. I will send an angel before you and drive out the Canaanites, Amorites, Hittites, Perizzites, Hivites, and Jebusites. Go up to the land flowing with milk and honey, but I will not go with you, because you are a stiff-necked people, and I might destroy you on the way. Moses said to the Lord, you have been telling me, lead these people, but you have not let me know whom you will send with me. You have said, I know you by name and you have found favor with me. If you are pleased with me, teach me your ways so I may know you and continue to find favor with you. Remember that this nation is your people. The Lord replied, my presence will go with you and I will give you rest. Then Moses said to him, if your presence does not go with us, do not send us up from here. How will anyone know that you are pleased with me and with your people unless you go with us? What else will distinguish me and your people from all the other people on the face of the earth? And the Lord said to Moses, I will do the very thing you have asked because I am pleased with you and I know you by name. Then Moses said, now show me your glory. And the Lord said, I will cause all my goodness to pass in front of you. And I will proclaim my name, the Lord, in your presence. I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I will have compassion. But, he said, you cannot see my face, for no one may see me and live. Then the Lord said, there is a place near me where you may stand on a rock. When my glory passes by, I will put you in a cleft in the rock and cover you with my hand until I have passed by. Then I will remove my hand, and you will see my back, but my face must not be seen." 
Then the Lord came down in the cloud and stood there with him and proclaimed his name, the Lord. And he passed in front of Moses, proclaiming the Lord, the Lord, the compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness, maintaining love to thousands and forgiving wickedness, rebellion and sin. Yet he does not leave the guilty unpunished. He punishes the children and their children for the sin of the parents to the third and fourth generation. Moses bowed to the ground at once and worshiped. It's God's word this morning. Let me ask you, what do you need to make it through whatever you're going through? I know, of course, many people come in here every week carrying burdens, carrying challenges, carrying problems. What does is, what is your heart need? Hmm? What does your life need to get from where you are to get to where you know you need to be? Well, I'll put it like this. You don't need another vacation. You don't need more stuff. You don't even need more money, as nice as that would be. You need one thing. The one thing Moses asked for, and the one thing Moses got. An encounter with the living God. That's what you need. So what does it mean to encounter the living God? Well, Moses found out, and this morning you can find out, it means to experience three things in particular. Number one is presence. Number two is glory. And finally, his goodness. Now, a couple of disclaimers before we get going as we do this. Please give me a bit of a wide berth here. As we look at these terms, you'll find the Scripture passage actually sort of uses these in an overlapping way. So, again, they're kind of overlap, but they are distinct in some ways. And secondly, number two, you know, preaching about the glory of God is kind of like trying to count to infinity. You can only get so close. So, you give me some grace as we get going. Here we go. Number one, what does it mean to encounter God? First, it means to encounter his presence. So let's ask, by the way, of beginning, where are we in the story in the book of Exodus? Well, we've seen that God has freed the Israelites in Egypt. He's rescued them from abject poverty, and he's enriched them through the Egyptians' gifts of gold as they were making their way out of Egypt. And with freedom in their hearts now and riches in their hands, God has brought them to a mountain After he has done everything for them, after he's provided them with bread from heaven, with water from a rock miraculously, after meeting every physical and external need, he brings them now to a mountain to profess his love for them and to enter into a covenant with them. God, in essence, is proposing marriage to Israel. He says, I have rescued you. Why? Oh, because I love you. I have had no other peoples before you, Israel. Now have no other gods before me. And what do the people say? Well, we saw it. They said, we will do it. Whatever you say, God, we'll do. We will love and obey you. They swear loyalty to him, promise to trust and serve him forever. Except they don't. (laughs) They don't. And we heard last week, Moses was absent for 40 days with God receiving the Ten Commandments. And while he was there, the people grew restless, decided to put their gifts of gold together and make a cow statue a cow statue, otherwise known as the golden calf. And now God, like a loving spouse whose lover has been unfaithful to him the day after the wedding ceremony, now he burns with righteous and jealous anger. And here in chapter 33, we reach a climactic turning point in the journey of the nation of Israel. And let's ask, what does God do next? What does he do here? Well, essentially he says, we read it, as he says, the deal's off. <laughs> the deal's off. You've broken my heart. You've broken my trust, broken our covenant. And now God comes to Moses here and he says something to him that's astonishing. He's about to make Moses an offer he seemingly can't refuse. Here's what he says in verse 2 of chapter 33. He says, I will send an angel before you and drive out all the peoples, go up to the land flowing with milk and honey, but I will not 
go with you. And this is incredible. You see, he's actually offering Moses here, in a sense, the actual form, the kind of deal of faith and spirituality and religious life that almost every person in Moses' day, and especially almost every person in our day, would say is just too good to be true. That's what every, I would say, the average American kind of wants out of their spiritual life. What's God offering? Well, he's offering them every kind of spiritual benefit possible with none of the cost. With none of the cost. He's saying, I will give you military protection. I'll bring you into your land. I'll give you free housing. Drive out the people in front of you. Free all you can eat food the rest of your life. It's a land flowing with milk and honey. I will take care of your every need, but I won't go with you. Therefore, there's no need to set up a tabernacle, Moses. There's no need to do all those sacrifices, Moses. No need to offer to me financially, Moses. No need to make time to prioritize me or worship me or hear my voice anymore, Moses. You can have all of the benefits and none of the responsibility. Hmm. And you had to know, of course, this sounded really good to Moses' heart, and maybe it sounds good to your heart today too, but while Moses knew that there would be all the benefits and none of the responsibility to God if he took the deal, he also knew there would be no relationship with God if he did. And this here is why Moses is so great. This is what makes Moses great. Moses, he'll have none of it. He'll have none of it. Look at what he says to God in response. Then Moses said to him, if your presence doesn't go with us, don't send us up from here. How will anyone know that you're pleased with us unless you go with us? What else will distinguish us from all other peoples? Oh, this is amazing, church. This is stunning here. You realize what he's just done by saying this. God has offered him everything his heart as a leader could have ever wanted. Unlimited military protection, meaning he would win every battle. He'd offer him money. He's offering him money, food, housing, land, everything the people would ever want. There'd be no more law, right? No more setting up of the tabernacle. No more, you know, setting up the church sound equipment week in and week out. No more having to recruit ushers or children's ministry workers to take care of all the babies, right? And all bills paid life and spirituality. And Moses says here, God You can stuff it. You can stuff it. You can keep your money. You can keep your victories. You can keep your milk and honey and no obligation spirituality. If I don't have you, God, I've got nothing. I've got nothing. I'll take losses. I'll take defeats. I'll take poverty gladly. But I've got to have you. I've got to have you. And you realize what he's done by doing this? I mean, he's just condemned himself to decades now of a lonely life of leadership of a grumbling and ungrateful people. They've only grumbled, accused Moses of poor leadership, even though Moses has only, you know, rescued them out of slavery or something like that. Why? Well, because they had a couple of rough patches on the way. Maybe there wasn't enough food at the community group lunch. Maybe there wasn't enough, you know, lemonade at the guest reception. They were offended. They didn't have unlimited access to the leader for like a month while he's up, you know, receiving the Ten Commandments. He wasn't returning phone calls or voicemails. They built a golden calf. Sounds logical. I get it. All right. Moses could have had a pain-free existence set up for a perfect track record of unlimited success. And he says, no way, no way. And here's what he's saying then. God, the risk of loss in my life is worth the reward of intimacy with you. I'll say it again. The risk of loss in my life is worth the reward of intimacy with you. The risk of loss, right? The risk of failure, of rejection, of being misunderstood and alone 
is worth the cost of knowing you, God. The pain it brings me to stay in relationship is more than worth it. God, you can shove your success. All I want is you. Let me ask, is this you today? Is this me today? Can you say the same thing? Before any of these other stories we know in our culture of kind of the same deal before Mephistopheles or Faust or George Burns in Oh God, if you remember that old lousy movie, before even Al Pacino in The Devil's Advocate, God himself asked the ultimate question. What do you want the most? Hmm? Success or him? Success or him? Moses said, God, it's you or it's nothing. It's nothing. It's a stunning answer. So let's ask, how could Moses answer like he did? Hmm? Well, let's look at what God said would happen if God went with Moses. The Lord replied. He said, my presence will go with you, and I will give you what? <coughs> rest. What's that? What's at the heart of God's presence? Oh, it's what? It's rest. God connects the dots for you. But why is this? How could God say his presence is rest? Well, the Hebrew word for presence is the word panim, which literally means face. God is saying, my face will give you rest. Now, what's this? Well, God is giving Moses and us here a metaphor for relational intimacy. It's a metaphor for relational intimacy. Uh, I remember the night that I got engaged to Carrie. And by the way, we'll celebrate our 14th anniversary this week. Thank you very much. The night we got engaged, I didn't stare at her ankles or her elbows, as lovely as those are as well. What did I stare at over the candlelit dinner? Her what? Her face. Why? Because to be face-to-face with the person is to experience relational intimacy with them. And in that moment, and maybe you experience this too if you're married, in that moment I knew I wanted no one else. I wanted no one else. That no one else mattered, and in a very real way, my job didn't matter, where we lived matter, what I was going to do matter, employment, job, where we live, those are all, you know, sort of important things, right? But they weren't the most important thing, were they? What was? Our love. And because I knew that, because I had that, what did I feel? A kind of rest on the inside that trumped all my questions on the outside. Were all my questions in life about to get answered because I had this rest? No. Was I about to get richer because I had this rest? No. Maybe about to get a bit poorer. That's what happens, all right? But did it matter? No, because I had her presence, right? Her face, I had rest from all those other concerns. And so when God says to Moses here that relational closeness with him is what brings rest, here's what he's saying. Oh, Moses, what you've only experienced in drops, in moments with others, I can give you in oceans with me. I can give you in oceans with myself for a lifetime. You realize what God's done here? Oh, he's saying, I've got an ocean of rest for my people, a breathtaking, wide-open, beautiful vista of space reserved exclusively for you, a seat at my table that's only filled when you're in it. See, if you think that looking into your husband's or wife's face is beautiful, and it is, no matter who they are and how long you've been married, and looking into that face brings a kind of rest, can you imagine what it would be like to look into the face of God? Hmm. Elaine Scarry is a professor at Harvard University. She's got a little book called On Beauty and Being Just. And she summarizes, this is her argument, basically the summary of the book. She puts it like this. She says, when you are in the presence of something truly beautiful, 
your soul experiences rest. You get an, a kind of, what she says, an overwhelming meaningfulness that pushes you out of yourself and towards others, that enables you to live a life and create, live life out of a sense of peace and rest. It's a powerful book and a powerful argument. See, God's face, his presence, his beauty is rest for you. It's rest no matter what you're in the middle of. Yes. What battle are you in the middle of today? Hmm? What trial did you come in here experiencing from which you need a kind of rest? Amy Carmichael was a 20th century missionary to India to help pull little girls out of sex slavery there, and she gave her whole life for this cause. And one night she fell in the dark after returning from a day of ministry. She was coming back to her camp and fell in a a ditch that had been dug during the day. And as a result of the fall, she suffered tremendously in pain. She was bedridden for decades of her life. And she began to despair of God's love. She asked, God, if you're real and you love me, how could this happen to me? I've given everything for you. But she broke through when she sought God's presence. She experienced his face and his rest. And she described the experience in a poem she wrote. It's a beautiful poem. It's called A Braver Song to sing and the first verse is in her voice and the response is in the voice of God and this is what she wrote she said it said I thought that I had courage in the house and patience to be quiet and endure and sometimes happy songs now I am sure thy servant truly hath not anything and see my songbird hath a broken wing God's response, he says, and I, pain's conqueror, am in the house. Let not your heart be troubled. Do not fear. Why shouldst thou, child of mine, if I am here? My touch will heal thy songbird's broken wing, and he shall have a braver song to sing. It's beautiful. See, our hearts, they don't need our battles to be won and our bills to be paid as much as they need to experience his presence and his rest. Why? Because you can win your battles and have your bills paid and your heart can still be in tatters and you can be restless the rest of your life apart from him. But when you experience his presence, oh, you get rest. That's what he promises you. He promises you that. Have you taken him up on the offer? Does your songbird have a broken wing this morning? Perhaps. Go to him. Let him give you a braver song to sing. See, Moses has experienced this. He's tasted it, and he's ruined for everything else. And that's why, because he's so intoxicated with God, it's beautiful. He doesn't just ask for God's presence here. He actually presses God for more. He wants to go deeper into the heart of God, and he asks for. What does Moses ask for next? Well, not just his presence. He asks for one word. Number two, he says, God, I want your glory. Glory. The Lord said to Moses, I will do the very thing you asked. Because I am pleased with you, and I know you by name. And Moses said, now show me your glory. Now, we've got to ask, why does he ask for this? Well, Moses has got to be thinking, and of course, maybe you're thinking too, if experiencing just one part of who God is, is that good? What would it be like to experience all of God? What would it like to come into the essence, the very heart of who he is, of his being? And Moses uses a word here to describe the element that makes God God, kind of like the element on a periodic table. He says the word that makes God, God is this one word. It's glory, glory. Well, what's glory? What does the word even mean? What's Moses, in a sense, asking for? Well, glory is the Hebrew word kavod. 
And it means two things at once, and that's actually the point. First, glory or kabod means weight or heaviness. And secondly, it means substance or what's really real. And the closest word we've got to communicating that in English is probably the word matter. Because matter is both substance and meaning. Matter has literal weight, as in the matter of the universe. And it's got philosophical weight, as when an idea matters. And so, therefore, what Moses is asking God for here is astounding. He's asking for... The full weight of reality. The full weight of anything that's possibly true and good and beautiful. The full weight of the heart and presence of God to come down on him. Ooh, it's amazing. And it's risky. (laughs) What's Moses showing us? He's showing us that he understands that to actually have God in your life, and not just on the periphery, but to really have God in your life means who God is and what God says matters more to you than what you think you are and what you say about you. In other words, what God says and thinks is going to literally have to outweigh, and figuratively outweigh, what you say and think as well. That what God has for you and wants for you matters more than what you want. Dr. John Gerstner was a pastor and seminary professor at Knox Theological Seminary, and he gave an illustration one time about a young woman back in the 1930s who attended a Christian conference and decided, as a result, to go into vocational ministry. She decided to be a full-time missionary and committed her life to Christ, to, to going over and serving God overseas in Asia and lived there permanently. And Dr. Gerstner said he had seen many young people over the years come through and make a similar commitment, but they had never followed through on what they committed. But, he said, this young woman was different. She kept her resolve. She retained her commitment in the front of her mind as she passed and kept going through life. She began to go to different mission agencies and educate herself on what it would take to make that commitment a reality. And despite hearing the statistics about how many young people were being martyred, how many missionaries were being killed for Christ in Asia in the 30s and 40s, she wanted to go anyway. So they said, okay, fine, you want to go? All right, you can, but you've got to do two things first. Number one, you've got to get theological in cross-cultural training, and number two, you've got to get married. (laughs) You've got to get married. At that time, single American women, both for safety and cultural reasons, weren't allowed to go as missionaries. So after hearing this, one night she said, okay, God, I'm going to take my hands off my life. I give you everything. I don't care about a comfortable life. I don't care about doing what I want as a safe life. It's all yours. You can send me where you want to. I'll go wherever you want. There's only one thing I need. I need a husband. (laughs) I need a husband to really serve you. And so she went to a Bible college, knowing that that kind of education probably wouldn't help her anywhere else but in vocational ministry and wouldn't help her in a different career, but she did it. She got her degree, went through school, and no husband presented himself. Sound familiar? Yeah. So she graduated. She went to, happens, yeah, went to a graduate level missionary training school because she couldn't go overseas yet, which was another two semester program. And all the way through, no prospect presented himself. Not even a date took place. Not a single prospect to marry. And so on the night before she graduated, she told Dr. Gerstner, I sat in my dorm room, an angry young woman. She said, God, I've given everything for you. I've put my life in your hands. I've got nowhere to go. I've trained for years for this. I've taken my hands off my life. What's wrong with you? And she sat in her dorm room, and she wrestled with God. But that night, thankfully, she had a breakthrough, and she realized something. She realized she wasn't miserable because she had taken her hands off her life. She was actually miserable 
because she never had taken her hands off her life. She saw that she had developed this idea of a noble and heroic uh, image of what she held up as the kind of life that God would have to let her live to prove that God loved her, that she had value. She was determining, can you see, for herself the kind of life that she would have to live and what she wanted. And she was doing everything she could to put God in her debt to give her the one thing her heart really wanted. And she said, suddenly for that, for the first time that night, I realized I had never taken my hands really off my life. And she surrendered to God. And Dr. Gerstner closed his sermon and the illustration by looking at the audience and asking them this. She said, if this girl, who would spend a third of her life preparing herself for missionary service and potential martyrdom, if this girl who would spend a third of her life saying goodbye to everyone and everything she knew, to loved ones and safety and material security, if that girl realized she had never taken her hands off her life, she said, he asked, do you think you have? Do you think you have? Do you think you've really taken your hands off your life? <laughs> he said, I doubt it. <laughs> I doubt it. And so I'm asking you this morning, same question. Do you think you've really taken your hands off your life? Only you can know that for sure. Has God asked you to do something that perhaps you're unwilling to do? Maybe he's asked some of you to go into vocational ministry. You're saying no. Maybe he's asked you to be reconciled to someone. Just drop the matter. Uh, Humble yourself. Just let something go with another person, and you can't do it. You're unwilling. He's asked you to maybe to give up a relationship or maybe take one up over here. And if he's asked you these things, and you're unwilling, how can you say, how can I say, we've really taken our hands off our lives? See, if that's the case, you're like this girl, clinging to an idea of what it means to serve God, but not surrendering to what God's actually asked you to do. And the frustration and anger that you may be experiencing in your life today are not because you've taken your hands off your life. It's because you haven't in that area. You're not doing what God's asked you to do, but this girl did, finally. And so let's ask, what caused her to do it? Oh, she put it like this. She said, I realized he was two things, infinitely wise and infinitely loving at the same time. And that's what that means. Because God is infinitely wise, it means that you do, you'll do everything in the Bible that it commands you to do, even if you don't like it. Because if you pick and choose what you obey in God's word, if you say, I don't like what the Bible says about my sex life, about my financial life, about loving my neighbor, about serving others, maybe even being involved in a local church, you're assuming that you are infinitely wise, which is really, really not smart and actually kind of proves that you're not. All right, think about that. But secondly, because God is infinitely loving, that means you can know he loves you more than you even love yourself. And because he loves you more than you could ever love yourself, his choices for you and how you're supposed to live, who you marry perhaps, where you go, your career, all those things are infinitely loving and infinitely more wise than anything you could ever imagine and choose for yourself. See, this girl took her hands off her life when she realized this. Will you? Will you? See, Moses does that exact kind of thing right here. And he shows us actually how to do it in this passage. Let's look briefly. Moments earlier in this encounter with God, look at what Moses says in his prayer. He says, God, if you are pleased with me, teach me your ways so I may know you and continue to find favor with you. Moses is showing us, it's incredible, what the inside of an authentic relationship with God actually looks like, like sort of like the DNA of it. He says, God, if you're pleased with me, God, if you really love me, that's what Moses is saying, if you really love me, teach me your ways. The word for ways here is a Hebrew word for path or journey or steps. Moses is saying, God, I want to go where you go. I want to think how you think. He's not saying, uh, he's saying, I want to get to know you, God. 
He's not saying as we today we do today in our culture, hey God, get to know me. Hey God, if you really love me, if you're pleased with me, like my status on Facebook, right? God, if you're really pleased with me, here's how I know you'll love me. You love me. If you follow me on Twitter, if you retweet something I post, that's how I know that you really love me. No, he's saying, God, the way I can know you love me is not if I have problems, if I don't have any more problems or troubles in life. He's saying, God, I know you love me if you teach me your ways, if you change me, right? God, if you grow me, that's how I know that you're pleased with me and love me. And why does Moses say this? Why does he ask this? He says, God, I just want to what? Know you. I just want to know you, God. Just for you. For you. This word know here is the Hebrew verb for how a husband and wife know each other physically, intimately in marriage. See, Moses is crying out, change my life. Do anything you want to me, God. I've just got to know you. Just got to know you. He said, God, I want you, your glory, and nothing else to define me. And I don't know about you. I want that to be my prayer for my life, as difficult as it is, honestly, to pray many times. I want to be able to pray, I don't care about my reputation. I don't care what people think about me. I'm not a slave to them, God. I'm a slave to you. And this also, as a pastor, is my prayer for this church and the heart of our church leadership's uh, heart. And listen, if you were at our weekly prayer meeting on Friday mornings, you would hear us pray this every week. And you actually, maybe you should be there because you could be there. All right, I'll leave it at that, 7 a.m. every Friday. We pray this, oh God, we want you and your glory to define us. We want the full weight of who you are to be what gives this church definition. That's what Moses is praying. That's what he's asking for. He says, God, show me your glory. So what was God's answer? (laughs) Oh, what did God give him? What did Moses give? What Moses got actually was amazing. But I want to tell you this. We can have even more than he got. And I'll show you how. What was it? Well, the final thing he got in his encounter with God here, number three, not just his presence, not even his glory. God gives him his goodness. His goodness, number three. When Moses says, now show me your glory, this is what God says in return. He says, I will cause, God says, all my goodness to pass in front of you, and I will proclaim my name, the Lord, in your presence. In other words, God is saying, inside my glory is something called my goodness, and I'm going to show you what it is. And what is it? Well, first of all, Moses, as a human being, actually doesn't know what he's asking for when he asks for the full weight of God to come down on him. It's like an ant looking up at you and saying, hey, will you put the full weight of your heel on me? What would happen? I would crush him, right? And God knows this. So God says, I'm going to come down, and you're going to experience me, but not a full experience of me. Because if that were to happen, it would be like throwing a burning log into the middle of the ocean, it would just extinguish you, Moses. But I will pass by, and I will tell you what the essence of my goodness is, what's at the heart of my glory. I'm going to tell you what makes me glorious, Moses. And what did God say it was? God comes down in the cloud in chapter 34, and here's what he says. The Lord, the Lord, the compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness, maintaining love to thousands, and forgiving wickedness, rebellion, and sin. Yet, he does not leave the guilty, unpunished. And you think, that's it? <laughs> that's his goodness? I mean, it's kind of like a contradiction and really not all that together inspiring. What does it mean? God is saying, I am absolutely loving, absolutely gracious, compassionate, and yet I will not leave the guilty and punished. He will punish, God says, every person. And yet, he's a forgiver 
of every evil person. How can this be? Because both of these things are, can you see, good. God is too good to allow injustice to go unpunished, and he's too good to allow evil people to remain apart from him. They're absolutely both true at the same time, and this is the essence of the goodness of God. He is absolutely judging of evil and absolutely loving of evil people, both 100%. At the same time, not 50-50, not 70-30, not some more one day or the other. No. He's saying no one will go free from justice. He's saying I will personally punish every sin you ever commit. And I, will, I can personally forgive every sin you commit. Oh, it's a tension. It's a mystery. That's why God calls it his back parts. That's why God calls it his back because you can't really see it all clearly or understand how the tension can be resolved. When you see a person's back, you get like a form or an outline of how they look and what they look like. But what do you really need to see and put together the full picture of who a person is? Well, you don't need just their back, do you? No. You need their front. You need their face. And what Moses got here, the back part of God, is an unresolved tension that runs through, actually propels the narrative of the Old Testament. It was like a puzzle with a central piece missing. And it remained unresolved until many years later, when the gospel writer John actually has the audacity to say, now the final piece has been put in place. And he tells us what it was. John chapter 1 says this, the word became flesh and made his dwelling It's literally the word tabernacle. He's evoking Exodus here. He's tabernacled among us. We have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only Son who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. For the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. What's John saying? He's saying that what Moses could never see We can. We can. We can see God's face, the full picture of who he is. We can see how God's justice and his mercy can be reconciled fully. Ask how so? Like this. Because on the cross, Jesus Christ became our sin. And there, the full weight of the justice of God's goodness came down on him. Because he became our sin. He was crushed in our place for every sin every person has and would ever commit. Every injustice you've ever done to someone. And every injustice someone's ever done to you. Jesus bore in his own body. And the justice of the goodness of God came down on him. The father rejected his one and only perfect beloved son. Why? So that the mercy of God's goodness, the mercy, the love, the forgiveness, the graciousness of God's goodness could come down on us. Do we deserve it? No. (laughs) Have we earned it? No. But that's what grace is. That's what grace is. See, in Jesus, God could be fully just and perfectly loving. And that's beautiful. That's glorious. And if you're here today, and for some reason you're keeping God at arm's length and saying, well, I don't see why God had to punish sin, let me just suggest to you, you've never really been wronged. Because people have been really wronged. I mean, really wronged. They always cry out for justice. They understand justice, some sort of payment has to be made. Love always costs. But second of all, if you want a God who's really loved at no cost, doesn't have to punish sin, what has that God ever done for you? What has he done for you? How has he proven he loves you? If he just loves everybody in a general kind of way. See, that's God like Santa Claus. Like a honey bear on a shelf. It's not even real. But a God who's given up everything for you, for me. Cosmic traitors. Oh, now we're getting somewhere. And when we see that, the glory of God in Jesus Christ, that changes us. That changes us. And it does, 
and it will. In other words, it changes us now, and it will change us then. What do I mean? Two things as we close. The Apostle Paul says in 1 Corinthians 3, he says, we who with unveiled faces contemplate the Lord's glory are being transformed into his image with ever-increasing glory. See, Paul is giving us here a gospel-based key to personal transformation. Do you want to change? Hmm? Do you want to be healed? He says, in essence, think, (laughs) that's the word, contemplate the gospel. Hold up in front of you how God can be fully just and fully merciful towards you. Think about who he is, what he's done for you, how he's rescued you. And guess what? As you do that, as you apply that to your heart and to your hurts, Paul says, glory comes glory comes in god's presence comes in your pain your hurt go out get up in other words read your bible pray worship gather with other christians in community where you get the glorious opportunity to you know obey the bible and love and forgive others who maybe have wronged you but the truth is as glorious as it all is and it is it still falls short of what one day what we can have You see, we can't have the fullness of an experience with God as long as we live here in this body, which is why John goes on to say, near the end of his life, one of the final things he wrote, he said, with a heart full of hope that we know that when he appears, we will be like him because we will see him just as he is. John's saying, when we are gathered into the arms of Christ for eternity, the glory that we've only had in degrees and days we'll now have in amounts and years beyond counting or comprehension and we will be one day forever changed see in many ways this passage is so profound we can only begin to scratch the surface of it i mean how can finite human language capture infinity but as c.s lewis said about god's glory one day god willing we'll get in and in that our hearts can hope this morning i hope you can say amen as we close Lord, we thank you for these truths today. We thank you for what you've shown us about who you are. You're the God who comes near. We thank you for coming near to our hearts this morning. If you're here today and you're saying, you know, I can see now that at least in some area, I've never really taken my hands off my life. And this morning, I'm committing before God I'm saying I'm ready to do that. If that's you, would you raise your hand this morning? I want to pray for you. Yeah. Lord, I pray for these. That you give them grace to see. <coughs> There's really not enough space for your will and our will to occupy the same place. Lord, as we look at who you are, presence, your rest, your glory, your goodness. We would know that you're infinitely more wise and loving than we could ever imagine. Well, right now we just say yes. If that's you, you had your hand, we just say yes. Yes to that. Yes, Lord, I'll, I'll follow. Yes, Lord, I'll obey. Yes, Lord. Have your way. And secondly, if you're here and you're saying, I just, I hear this and I want a fresh encounter with who God is, his glory in my life in a new and compelling way, would you raise your hand this morning? I pray for you. Lord, we long for that. Lord, we see like Moses, he had to get away. He had to go up a mountain. He had to create space for you, for him to meet. 
but whether it's in the early hours of the morning or the late hours of the night or our space and our break at midday or some kind of place. Lord, speak to our hearts. Tug on us. Help us to get away with you and encounter you in a fresh way. In Jesus' name, amen.